At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In 2021, City Lights began our series, Speaking of Art, to highlight the many diverse visual artists in our city. We've since expanded to include Speaking of Music and Speaking of Comedy, and today, We add speaking of dance to our series. The Necessity of Seduction, Cuba and Eros, is a new exhibition at the Echo Contemporary. Later this hour, curator and artist Karen Graffio explains how the works on view reveal themes of femininity, spirituality, and Cuban identity. First, Valentine's Day is soon, and you can celebrate your love for improv comedy in a special event featuring comedian and popular actor Mark Evan Jackson, known for his roles in Brooklyn Nine-Nine and The Good Place, among many others. Jackson will join some of Atlanta's top improv artists this Saturday at 8 p.m. in a performance at Atlantic Station. The show is presented by Vaguely Specific Productions, co-founded and owned by Atlanta-based John Carr and Kevin Galiz. They join me now via Zoom, along with Mark Evan Jackson. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much. We are so excited to be speaking with you today, Lois. Thanks for having us. Oh, so much fun for me. Starting out with Mark, thanks to your popularity on TV, over two decades and a couple years, many people are familiar with you as an actor and comedian, maybe not as familiar with your work in comedy improv. Would you please tell us about your history with the art form? I will, yes. My history with improvisation, like a lot of things about my life, is completely accidental. After college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. In fact, for two years after college, I was a deckhand and first mate aboard old tall ships, sailing schooners in the Great Lakes and in Maine. 
And I went back after a couple of seasons of that back to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I was, uh, where I'd gone to college. And some alumni of my college were putting together a short form improv troupe that played games sort of along the lines of whose line is it anyway. And they asked my former college roommate to come play the piano for them to be their accompanist. And he said, I don't want to do that. You go do that. I've played the piano since age six and played most instruments. And I was truly at my very first rehearsal for River City Improv in probably 1993 or four and witnessed them improvising and within 10 minutes said, we have to find somebody else to come play the piano because I want to learn to do what you do and I want to do it for the rest of my life. And here you are. And here I am. It's, it's completely accidental and it was a true aha moment. Improv is, is just such a life opening, world opening, curiosity building, fear erasing, empowering skill. And it has improved my life immensely. And the only downside is that I didn't find it until I was 24 or 25. Oh, you were so old. <laughs> I know. Over the hill, Lois. Yeah. What would Mozart say? I mean, about 24, <laughs> look what he was doing. It's fantastic that you discovered your calling there. And you went on to improv in Detroit and there was Second City, and then tell us more. Well, I was, I was working as a producer for National Public Radio Affiliates in West Michigan yes. at the time. Yes. And uh, the Second City Touring Company from the Second City in Detroit came through. They were doing some shows, and we had them on our 9 to noon, Monday through Friday call-in talk show on WGVU AM and FM, 1480 AM, 88.5 FM. <laughs> Do you have tote bags? We, oh, we did. Certainly did. Uh, Mugs for days. But we had them on and I casually said to their producer when, when as they were leaving the studio, I'm an improviser as well. And if you ever hold auditions, please let me know. And about five months later, he, I think, called because I'm not certain there was email then. And he said, we're having auditions. And so I, a friend and I drove down two and a half hours to Detroit and auditioned for the Second City. And I arguably made the mistake of putting all of my music on my resume and they hired me sight unheard to be the musical director for the touring company oh wow. and not, not long after that i was the musical director for the main stage company the resident company in detroit so i moved to detroit and then a year or two into that i made the transition to being uh, i had to find my replacement there as well and uh, became a main stage actor at the second city and people often ask us what was in the drinking water in Detroit in the late 90s, because out of that generation came people like Mary Beth Monroe and Keegan-Michael Key and Sam Richardson and Tim Robinson and Larry Joe Campbell and Jamie Moyer and throngs of others. The people that I came up with all are working and are very skilled and remain my closest friends to this day. Oh, that's fantastic. And as I've had the privilege of learning from these other two gentlemen with us, mm -hmm. that improv spirit or, or credo of yes and, that generosity of spirit yep. has pervaded everything Kevin and John do. And you know, what you just said attests to the beauty of that culture. It is the opposite of cutthroat. It's true. Yeah, it's um, we would sometimes refer to it as a Darwinian ensemble. It was certainly ensemble, <laughs> but I'm also, you know, I'm also going to be seen and get my bits in. But truly, you know, along with Yes And as one of the basic tenets of improvisation, making your scene partners look good is another basic thing. So it's 
baked in empathy, it's baked in kindness, and it pervades to off the stage as well. And you realize success is not a zero sum game. Other people doing well doesn't, doesn't diminish my happiness or success. You have to, you know, really celebrate everyone's accomplishments and successes. And it's life is not the competition that we think it is. And, and more people should improvise. I, I am a, an evangelist for improvisation, whether you have any hope of being in the arts or in comedy or a writer or director, anything. Accountants, coal miners, everyone should improvise. It, it's good for everyone. It's such, a, such an empowering skill. I think I spent a lot of my life wasted when I didn't know something and, and was in a conversation, I would say, okay, cool, got it, thank you. Don't tell me anymore, I'm uncomfortable, I'm, I feel weak, I feel dumb. <laughs> and improv teaches you that you just don't know that yet. And so you you take a 180 degree different take on it and you say, wow, I don't know anything about this. Tell me everything, like fill me with your details. And it, it makes life better. Well, I look forward to talking more about some of the work that the three of you have done beyond the comedy stage. I want to ask John and Kevin, well, first I want to tell you both that I must congratulate you on the title of Vaguely Specific Productions because it's so beautifully in line with your comic sensibilities. I read that Mark's performance will be the first in a series of bringing Hollywood actors to Atlanta. Hollywood meets Yollywood, we call it, Mark. This is Yollywood. And in the spirit of inclusivity for Kevin, I should say, North American comedy artists, more of them coming to Atlanta, right? Thank you very much for acknowledging my Canadian heritage. It makes my icy little Canadian heart so warm. <laughs> Little little maple leaves on the left sides of those hearts, no doubt. Well, it's important for us to recognize. And Kevin, I know we could go on at length about how stupid and chauvinistic people in the U.S. are about Canada, but that's for another conversation, right? Okay, deal. <laughs> All right. So... This special evening with Mark and Atlanta comedy improv artists, because it's a Valentine's-themed show, it made me think of one of your colleagues, another Second City alum, Tina Fey. And one of her episodes on 30 Rock had her character, Liz Lemon, tell a child that the real importance of February 14th is that it was the birthday of the American suffragette Anna Howard Shaw. And it, it, Liz Lemon was on a mission to downplay the romantic aspect of Valentine's Day. I'm curious, how will you mine the audience for material for this Valentine's show? 
Well, first of all, let me just say, I'm glad you brought up Tina Fey because she actually asked to be on this show. And we said, we don't, <laughs> we, this is Mark's show. You know what I mean? Like, don't try to get in on it. So I just wanted to put that out officially and clear the air. <laughs> Wait, Kevin, this is the official no, Anne, <laughs> well, that you're talking about, you know, the, right? The, exactly. Uh, sometimes in improv, you have to learn when to say no. <laughs> uh, well, I only brought her up because of that wonderful curmudgeonly attitude Liz Lemon had about Valentine's Day. And in the spirit of inclusivity, <laughs> Mark, are you going to be thinking about people who are uncoupled or not coupled? Well, the beauty of an improv show is that we go to the audience for suggestions frequently. And one of the things that Kevin and John and I talked about doing was going to people for some of their stories. Sometimes we're looking to the audience for suggestions of a single word or an emotion or a location, but there are also opportunities for us to say, to essentially interview an audience member briefly and get some of their backstory, get, find out if they are coupled or uncoupled and find out the stories behind that. And then use that as sort of a table of contents to do a series of scene, a longer form aspect of improvisation to take some of those effectively what become inside jokes with the audience because they saw us learning the information for the first time. And then they're going to see us do with it what we might. The wonderful thing about it is that we also get a chance to, you know, we love stories and romance, romantic stories of love going right, but sometimes the best ones are when it goes wrong and that doesn't <laughs> quite work out. So the wonderful thing that we're able to do is use all versions of stories, good, bad, or otherwise, and uh, make something fun with it. So John, do you have a little personal story of something that went wrong that would leave us laughing hard? <laughs> I have so many of those stories. <laughs> it is- Want to share one? That's a... <laughs> Oh, you know, there have been so many people that I've, I thought this was the one. And then I took them to one of my shows and <laughs> I did, let's just say less than ideal performances and, you know, never got a text message uh, returned or a phone call returned after that. So, you know, they told me being on stage would make me more attractive. That has not been the case at all. So uh, I fortunately found someone who loves me and does not want to be on stage. And so we're, we're working great because of that. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with three very funny gentlemen, actor and comedian Mark Evan Jackson and vaguely specific production co-founders, Kevin Galiz and John Carr. Well, Kevin, your house is so filled with laughter, humor, and comic creativity. Is there an Amber story you can share for Valentine's Day? And then maybe Mark will take note and it'll appear on stage at Atlantic Station. <laughs> so you want to, you, you'd like a, a funny story about my love and marriage with Miss Amber Nash? Is that what we're looking for? Do tell, <laughs> do tell. I mean, 
Well, I'll start off by saying that I'm really lucky that for this Valentine's Day comedy show, I have my wife Amber joining us in the cast. Ooh. So it's not like I'm ditching her to go do something else. <laughs> We're doing a thing together. So I, I feel like that was uh, some 3D chess that I was playing, <laughs> setting this whole thing up. But I guess... <sighs> I don't know that it's very funny, but it is very romantic. So I'll tell you briefly the story of how Amber and I first got together, if you'd like to know. Oh, I'd love to. I know our listeners are sitting on the edges of their seats. Well, she and I had been colleagues and friends and collaborators for many, many years. I think about 10 years before anything romantic ever happened. But we ended up spending some more time together once I had moved down to Atlanta and uh, I thought I was maybe feeling the vibe, but didn't want to jump the gun because when you've got a good kind of relationship going on, you don't want to spoil it by doing something dumb. And so one night we were hanging out late and there was kind of a third wheel friend of ours hanging out with us real late, real late. And then- John Carr. <coughs> John Carr. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually things got late enough that everyone left. And I texted Amber and I said, you know, it's too bad that our friend was there so late because if not, I was thinking I might lay a smooch on you. And she <gasps> said, go for it. And so at that time I didn't have a vehicle. She was already back at her house in the Virginia Highlands and I was at my apartment in Little Five Points. So I ripped out of my apartment and I ran all the way to Virginia Highlands and knocked on her door and she opened the door and without saying a word, I, I gave her a smooch and that's we've been, we haven't been apart ever since. Oh, how beautiful. I love that. All right. So that's going to be on stage Saturday, right, Mark? I love that so much. And I will tell you in advance that my brain already exaggerated all of this to make Virginia Highlands not a neighborhood, as I now understand it to be of Atlanta, but the Highlands of the state of Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And Kevin was wearing his cape while he was running <laughs> and going there. Mark, of uh, Pivoting back to scripted work, mm -hmm. I loved your portrayal on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Oh, God, I love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Of Kevin Cosner. Cosner. Uh, you know, you, you were the captain's husband, and you were also, you know, a, a serious guy. I mean, a professor of classics at Columbia and the captain was typically intellectual slash nerdy and his love of all things arcane. What was it like for you to play that kind of role? It was such a gift uh, to, to be a part of any of these Mike Shore universe shows, Parks and Recreation or The Good Place or Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's a dream job because you are legitimately working with the funniest, kindest, most accomplished writers in Hollywood, and by extension, casts and crews even. Mike Shore has a, has a no jerks rule. And so everyone on the, each one of these sets, there's no ego, there's nobody's obstreperous or obnoxious. Everybody's getting paid and is good at it and is happy to be there. Oh, wow. And therefore things move smoothly. It's, a, it's a very akin to an improv mindset. And so to be offered the role of Kevin Cosner, 
my history with that show is an interesting one because I went through the full process of testing for the role of Charles Boyle, played by Joe Latrulio. It came down to the two of us, and I did everything that I wanted to do in my auditions. But I, you know, Joe Latrulio truly was meant to be Charles Boyle. I was doing my version of it, my Mark Evan Jackson sort of Niles Crane C-3PO version of it, <laughs> uh, which is my resting position. And it was funny enough that they kept bringing me back and it's how I met these folks and later got to be part of you know Parks and Recreation and 22 Jump, Jump Street and various things. But later when they emailed and, and, and offered me the role of Kevin Cosner, I legitimately screamed. My, my people called and said, um, they're sending over something. We should have it in a minute. And they, I was sitting in my office in my home and read the email aloud of Dr. Kevin Cosner, husband of Captain Raymond Holt. Like I, I screamed and uh, my wife came running in. I was like, <laughs> this is about to be amazing. And the first time we shot that I worked with Andre, I guess the very first time was for some still photography for an episode called The Party in season one. And then the very first episode uh, scene that we shot was a spat in our bedroom, a bit of a kerfuffle. They, you know, got everything r rolling. They rolled sound, they rolled camera. And I said to Dan Gore, the showrunner, like, hang on, hang on, hang on. We haven't talked about this. Who is this guy? And he said, he's you. And I thought, oh, well, I can do that. <laughs> so obviously it's me with some exaggerations and some enhancements here and there. I'm not quite so stoic. I'm not quite so dry, but it's a, it's a brand of comedy. It's a, it's a theatrical game to play that I just love. And to have two of, uh, in the words of Jake Peralta, hella specifics, uh, you know, between Captain Holt and, and Kevin Cosner, two very specific odd dudes. There, there's just a lot to be, a lot of yellow-crested warblers to be enjoyed. Well, and I have to say, as a viewer and an admirer of the show, of your talent and Andre Brar, knowing your other roles and what you're capable, and, you know, I think of him, one of my favorite roles that he played was, did you ever see when he was the shrink on House? No, I'm not familiar with that at all. Okay, on the House series. Yeah. Hugh Laurie. Yeah, yes. spoilers. If, if you haven't been like my husband and me and binged the whole thing. They had their chance. He House spent some time in a psychiatric hospital. And Andre plays the role of his shrink. And it could be something straight out of the actor's studio, you know, a, a gorgeous lesson in acting. And so I'm looking at you playing this very serious, nerdy, wonderful classics professor and, and Captain Holt in his eccentric way and thinking, my God, look at the range that you people are capable of. You are overtly kind to lump me into a group with Andre Brower. But I will tell you that his craft is no different playing a half-hour sitcom than it is for anything that he does, I presume stage, but for Homicide Life on the you know, for everything that he does. Andre Brower would look at a script and say, like, I'm afraid we're saying the same thing twice. Or isn't there a way to economize language here? And he took the same approach to Brooklyn Nine-Nine that I presume he does with all of his artistic work. And 
would look for ways and it truly made it better. And the answer to Andre Brower's question, why am I saying this? It would never have been satisfactory to say, because it's funny. He needed to have a grounded reason for Captain Holt, a gay police captain in a New York City police department precinct, to say something. It, 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 just for, for bits, just for giggles, he wouldn't do it. He needed to know why, and it needed to be a truly grounded reason. He's, he's an actor. He's an artist. Well, the very treatment of Captain Holt and your professor's relationship was also extraordinary on that show because it felt so different from standard sitcom portrayals of a gay couple. I imagine that was very intentional also. It wasn't, but I will tell you again, this we didn't have lengthy workshops about it. Andre and I huddled for two seconds before we rolled and said, this is how I see him, this is how I see our relationship. And I said, that's exactly how I see it too. Like we're not going to lean into some, you know, tired feminine tropes, lispy and lilty. We were never going to, that was never even a question. These are, these are two very odd people, but <laughs> who they love is not what makes them odd. You know, Indeed. they, we were immediately on the same page about the severity of our relationship and that they were just, you know, they were sort of an old married couple in the way you would think of any brand of any relationship. Mm -hmm. In John's multifaceted career, before taking the helm at Second City, all the years he spent in creative work here and Kevin's time at the helm of Dad's Garage, in addition to other projects across the spectrum, Atlanta got to see the benefits of how far-reaching improv can be beyond the comedy stage. Similarly, I was hoping you would talk about your work with the Detroit Creativity Project, Mark. Oh, Lois, thank you for knowing the Detroit Creativity Project. My wife and I, about 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, in fact, my wife Beth Hagenlocker and I were looking for ways to give back to the city of Detroit, a place that I lived in for four years in the late 90s, but in four short years became home. Detroit, like Atlanta, is special. It's It's got a vibe, it's got a history, It's it's a place that truly you don't have to spend much time to realize like something something is afoot, something special artistically, culturally. Obviously it has history in the automotive industry and with Motown and with electronic music, but there's something there that's special. So we were looking for ways to give back to the city that provided my friends and me careers, launch pads to be able to go forth and do this work in New York and, and uh, Los Angeles and now Atlanta. And we had a we had a series of we had some dinner parties at our house in Venice Beach and and had people over and to a person everybody said why aren't we already teaching improv there that's the that's the common denominator between all of us like that's the thing that opened all of our worlds and taught us how to create more fully taught us to fearlessly create and we should be sharing that with middle and high school students in Detroit so we launched a pilot program of the improv project and. We are 
uh, pay artists, teaching artists who are improvisers and skilled at this to go into middle and high schools. And we're working with lots of people where we've now reached down as young as to fourth grade. And we empower and inspire the youth of Detroit through improvisation, which is such, as I said, such a life opening, empowering, fear erasing, empathy driving, curiosity building life skill. It's also as a side effect, super fun and funny. <laughs> I have to thank you all for your evangelism. <laughs> You've, I mean, you could convert anybody. It's just such goodness. And thank you so very much. Mark Evan Jackson, Kevin Galise, John Carr, this has been a joy. Thank you, Lois. Yeah, we will see you at Atlantic Station, Miss. <laughs> thank you so much, Lois, for having us. Always a pleasure. And thank you for uh, being willing to talk about this stuff because we love it so much. Very clever co-founders of Vaguely Specific Productions, John Carr and Kevin Gillies. They were joined by comedian and actor Mark Evan Jackson. Their Valentine's Day weekend interactive comedy improv show is this Saturday, February 11th at Atlantic Station. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, our newest addition to the Speaking Of series, Speaking of Dance. Today, we'll feature Atlanta dance maker Leo Briggs. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. In 2021, City Lights began the series Speaking of Art to highlight the many diverse visual artists in our city. We've since expanded our series to include Speaking of Music and Speaking of Comedy, and today we add speaking of dance to our collection. Atlanta's dance scene is vibrant and eclectic, and we're delighted to highlight some of the many local dancers that move us with their movements. My name is Leo Briggs. I use any and all pronouns, and I am a dance maker based in Atlanta, Georgia. When I'm moving by myself, for myself, I tend to gravitate towards the horizontal plane. 
I love to just roll and wiggle on the floor and find new patterns, new ways of interacting with the floor. When I'm improvising, I'm always thinking about the relationship between my head and my tailbone, trying to be aware of the entire length of my spine. I was born in the Badlands, honey. Strange place for a boy to drown. Spend my days on a mountain, baby. Twelve miles north of Sofia town. I move from a place of weight and momentum as opposed to effort, letting the arms fall, swing, and catch as opposed to carving or muscling through the space. And I also love to talk when I dance. I'm always interested in the way that spoken text and even just noise can integrate with movement. Running out the days, riding out a song. I began dancing at the age of eight when my parents took me to see the Nutcracker. I guess they thought that I would be asleep 20 minutes in, but I was glued to the edge of my seat. They enrolled me in ballet classes shortly afterwards. But it wasn't until at least 10 years later, honestly, that I realized I had a passion and a talent for making dances. Actually, I was always kind of the worst student in my classes technically growing up. But when I was a student at Emory University here in Atlanta, the dance faculty really nourished my intellectual curiosity for movement. And I really began to develop a voice, especially as I came into my identity as a trans person. For hanging around, left tomorrow, gone tomorrow, maybe there ain't trail to follow. Most of my work is focused on the effort for queer and trans liberation. For me, movement is the perfect vehicle. After all, the center of it all is the body, and the idea that the body itself can be an act of creation. I am fascinated by the way that gender plays in our world and how we can play outside of it. Part of this journey for me has always been about connecting with the queer history from which I felt quite untethered as a child. Polishing your wind never drove it far. The gay writer William S. Burroughs inspired a solo work I made a few years back. And most recently, I was doing a lot of research into the story of Kitty Genovese, a gay woman who was murdered in New York City in the 1960s. For me, queer history includes a lot of queer pop culture, too, and I draw from that a lot. Films like Silence of the Lambs and Brokeback Mountain, for example, have inspired some of my work. I love to be a creator in Atlanta. More so than other major cities in the U.S., Atlanta is a hotbed for independent creatives and venues. There aren't as many big companies that are sucking the resources away from small local artists, so there's a lot of room to take risks and experiment. And obviously, the wealth of knowledge here is outrageous, and I have learned so much from my peers and mentors here. A lot of young dancers think that it's important to move to New York or Los Angeles in order to make a career for yourself in dance. But I'm a firm believer that you should always give back your talents to the community that gave them to you in the first place. And I can't wait to do that here in Atlanta. Left a room on a reckless wonder Raising sand on the setting sun you can follow me on Instagram at lbriggsmoves, L-B-R-I-G-G-S-M-O-V-E-S. -G -G -E I also teach a contemporary floor work open class every Tuesday morning at Kellenwald Fine Arts Center. You can also come sit at the bar at the White Bull in Decatur where I work. I love to have a good conversation with strangers. 
That was Leo Briggs dancing to music by Orville Peck. More information about Briggs, as well as our entire Speaking of series, is on our website, wabe.org slash speakingof. Coming up, a look at Echo Contemporary's new exhibition, The Necessity of Seduction, Cuba and Eros. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Femininity, spirituality, and Cuban identity are themes explored in The Necessity of Seduction, Cuba and Eros, a new exhibition on view at the Echo Contemporary with works by three artists from Cuba and the U.S., the curator and featured artist Karen Graffio was inspired by tiny erotic photographs that were once included with cigars sold in Cuba in the 1800s. She joins me now via Zoom to share more about the history of these photos and why they spoke volumes about the themes represented in the exhibition. Karen Graffia, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. It's an ear-catching title. What's the meaning behind the necessity of seduction? I think the title especially came from when I scanned and enlarged the tiny photographs there was one of them where I could clearly see a large thumbprint across the belly of the woman in the photograph. And so this physical mark showed me that the viewer was united with the woman in the photograph. And I realized these images were seductive secrets and the cherished tiny size of them gave evidence that these images were handled, caressed, and cherished. So I regarded the marks as a proof of the necessity of a positive seduction in um, reflection of this bit of history. I will add that in researching these, I found that at first these tiny photographs that informed the rest of the work, these were somewhat taboo until there was a turning point. And in the 20s, women of the era would go to the photographers that worked for the tobacco companies. And many of them would ask to be photographed as one of the women in the tiny photographs. And that was another aspect of seduction. I realized that this was a beauty, a standard of beauty before dieting and surgery informed beauty. It was a real sensuous, positive beauty. And so I felt like these little 
tiny photographs that were little personal peep shows carried in pockets were very important to the women of the time as well. These photographs are one inch by two inches and they were included in every tobacco product, cigars, especially from the late 1800s to the mid-1950s. It seems there are key pieces we do well to understand before we take in the exhibition. Would you please explain the concept of anima as you reference it? Oh, exactly. Thank you so much. Anima comes from Jungian terminology, and I'm not an expert in the other aspects of Jungian terminology, but it refers to the feminine principle as reflected through nature and the masculine. And I guess this the exhibition, I titled it The Necessity of Seduction, Cuba and Eros, but it could even enlarge to be within the viewer. I'd like for them to think of the necessity of the feminine. Ah. When Fidel Castro rose to power in Cuba, the cigar photos were changed to heroic images of monuments or, of course, Castro himself, masculine imagery. Do you think Cuba's power structures feared the impact of feminine imagery? Oh, I think that the feminine really guides, it's a subcurrent, it really guides Cuba and religious practices in Cuba. However, I think that the popularity of the images sparked a climate of charisma. And (laughs) when the images were changed to portraits of Castro and leaders and monuments, something of the popularity of the photos was lost, the original intention and the reason they were collected. And in fact, they're so collected that they're still quite rare. I felt really lucky. I was traveling through Cuba doing documentary projects, journalistic projects. And when I would stop at markets and find these, I was just intrigued. And then as I researched them, as you mentioned, the necessity of seduction that these tiny photographs provided changed to the agenda of charisma. Hmm. What were your considerations bringing in the other two artists? So I invited Esteban Guerra to address these images as monuments and spirituality. And then in Atlanta, I had seen the paintings of Rolando Vasquez Hernandez and they had such a, an impact on me. So I invited him also. And I felt like having the masculine Cuban impact would be necessary for the exhibition. And we had a wonderful time collaborating on these. In the press materials, you mentioned that the erotic Cuban cigar photos 
only depicted light-skinned women. How do the works in this exhibition create a conversation about race, about brownness, as you put it, with those images from the past? As I collected the photographs, one of the things that initiated the exhibition was my surprise that this would be beauty cut by a racial lens when Cubans tend to be all colors of brown and flesh. So in questioning that, I felt like that uh, making the exhibition could be a way to give back brownness and blackness and all flesh tones as an honorable standard of beauty. And so in my progress with addressing those goals about beauty, I envisioned this as a duet with history. And as I worked on the images, I included things that I had experienced within the multitude of colors of Cuban people. One that I had mentioned was the aspect of layering the prayers that are common in Afro-Cuban religious practices. And in the framing, all of the frames address blackness and the beauty of each image, regardless of the skin tone of the woman, each image is held in a very exotic, deep black frame. Karen Graffio, thank you very much for talking with us about the necessity of seduction. Thank you so much. Artist and curator Karen Graffio, The Necessity of Seduction is on view at the Echo Contemporary through February 25th, and more information is on our website wabe.org slash citylights. Time now for our series, Speaking of Comedy, where local comedians share their inspiration and stories from the small stage. Hi, my name is Mike Albanese, and I am an Atlanta comedian. I first got into stand-up when... I kind of had my life falling apart when I was living in Florida, which is a shocker to find out that somebody's life wasn't doing great in Florida. Uh, I grew up in Gwinnett County, but I moved down there, chased a girl, which always works out perfectly. And uh, a buddy of mine, great comic, still works here in Atlanta as a comedian, Bob Place, had been doing comedy for years. Ever since I've known him, we were in high school, he was doing stand-up. And when things weren't going well for me, got out of a relationship that almost ended in marriage, job was done, it was a whole scenario. I was just like, hey man, I really want to try my hand at this. And uh, I just kind of packed my bags and moved up to Atlanta. And me and him just kind of hit the road and hit the Atlanta comedy scene full force for years. And um, yeah, that was, uh, it was a really fun couple of years. And uh, I think that's what makes Atlanta such a great community, too, is that there's so many opportunities to do stand-up and, and get, get good. 
Some of my biggest challenges in the, in, uh, the comedy industry have been me. I think I'm my own worst enemy, my own worst critic, but also my self-doubt, anxiety, all these things kind of get in my way. Because especially now, like, the world is open to anybody who wants to put anything out there. You don't have to wait for somebody to do it for you. So it's really just, just it's more me getting out of my own way to try to um, continue to move up and become better at comedy, get more people listening to my comedy, so on and so forth. I think my inspiration for most of my material, and I hate the word inspiration for material when it comes to comedy, because it just seems so much more grandiose than it really is. But, you know, I, I like to put myself in situations that instinctively I wouldn't want to be in. Nothing like crazy or dangerous necessarily, but like socially, if I'm like, ugh, I don't want to go do that. I don't want to go to this party. I don't want to go to this dinner. I don't want to go, you know, to this event. I stop myself and I go, no, go, because when you're upset or you don't want to be somewhere, you're going to start finding the funny in those moments. And I think that's where my funny comes from, is those moments. Uh, it's like a digital currency. Um, I didn't mean to leave you out. I didn't mean to leave you out of this. So there's a blockchain. Ugh, I got to go farther back. I'm sorry. You ever you remember Monopoly? It's just like that. It's just like that. It's fake money in a fake real estate. The metaverse, that shit ain't real either. And you're moving fake cars, Tesla. You're moving them around the thing. And someone's going to go to jail at some point. So that's, that's what crypto is. Just to be a thing. So the bit that I had shared was an off-the-cuff moment that I had. There was an older couple sitting in the front row, and the rest of the crowd was, I mean, 21 if they were a day old. They were all super young. And so as I was going through the night, I just would turn to them and explain some of the more, like, quote, younger terminology. And they got it. I mean, it was I wasn't really explaining anything to them, but it was just fun for everybody. And they were having getting a kick out of it. So I just kept doing it. And then when I was riffing with one girl who said she did something ridiculous in cryptocurrency, she said she was a, a crypto uh, accountant. Um, and then I asked her, how does she get paid? And she goes, oh, I get paid in like America, like in money. And that's why I was like, well, crypto is just an insane idea. If someone who's an accountant for crypto doesn't accept crypto for payment. Anyway, so I started talking to the, the people in the front row and then it was just a really fun, fun night. I'm super proud that I uh, came from Atlanta uh, doing comedy because Atlanta, you can hide as a comedian in Atlanta and just cut your teeth and fail over and over and over again without really much pressure from like, quote, industry watching you and getting a taste in their mouth for you too soon. I've seen a lot of people that industry gloms onto them real quick for, for whatever reason, whether they, or they had one good joke or they look a certain way or they have one specific point of view and then they get a bunch of opportunities in the industry and then they don't have the chops to keep that up. So I think it's really cool to have started in Atlanta where you can just kind of make the mistakes without like a, a lot at stake. I love involving the crowd in my set when it makes sense. 
just like the bit that I had sent in was just off the cuff type of thing that happened during that show. I love it when the crowd just kind of lets me meander throughout my set, talk to them a little, ask them questions, but not like, what do you do? What's your, you know, not that like the kind of the classic move, but like let them react to certain jokes and why do they react to a certain story or the way that I told it. And then I can kind of find my way through the rest of my set. And I've had sometimes where, you know, I'll go full hours without telling a single joke that I prepared just because the crowd is just really, really into it. And they get a, like an experience. And I never thought that that's who I'd be as a comedian. I thought that like I was going to be a joke writer and like stick to the script type of thing. But like as I get older and I get more comfortable in my own skin, uh, I get more comfortable on stage and it's kind of led me into that new direction of being able to be super comfortable with no backup plan as much as I am with like sticking to the plan. Mike Albanese and our series Speaking of Comedy. More information about Albanese is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Robert Battle, the artistic director of Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, joins us ahead of the troupe's upcoming performances at the Fox Theater. If you missed part of today's show, like our earlier story, about vaguely specific productions, comedy improv show. You could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Trove. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. From W-A-B-E Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.